All right. James chapter 5 is where we're going to be headed. So if you guys want to take out your Bibles, if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one in the seat pockets close to you. We are going to be rounding out the fifth chapter of James as we finish our study through uh, this little book. We have been spending probably seven weeks now in this book studying through it. And so by now, you Bible students that have been here know that the theme of the book of James is true faith works. That we don't have a works-based faith, but instead we have a faith that works. That as we come into a right relationship with Christ, we will want to, desire to, go out and do things for Jesus. It's not a have-to Christianity, but a get-to relationship that we get to experience with him. And so as James is writing this letter about faith and about going out and doing good works because we get to go do them, not required, but as he writes this, he's writing to encourage them to become more mature in their relationship with Jesus. And so each different chapter, he takes another angle on Christian maturity. He begins in chapter 1 sharing with them, who by the way have all been driven away from their homes, they've been ran off from everyone they knew and loved in Jerusalem, they've been persecuted at the hands of their own brethren mostly, but also the Roman Empire. They're now all throughout the globe, and what James gives them in chapter 1 is, hey, of the trials that you experience, you should be joyful in those. Man, you should be joyful in the midst of a trial which he knows is difficult. But as we grow in a relationship with Jesus, what we'll find is that uh, we realize that God is all about getting the most good for the most people. He is looking to take our stories and actually use even the negative, even the difficult, even those storms to mature us and to actually encourage other people. And so this is what James starts with in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, what he encourages mature Christians to do is to grow in a right relationship, in a true relationship with others. What we know about Jesus is that he actually came in order to make a relationship that was broken. The fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, it was broken at that point. We could no longer be in a right relationship with God without a sacrifice, without an intermediary, without a covering, an atonement. And so as he shares this with them, Jesus Christ came to be that perfect atoning sacrifice on our behalf. To do what we couldn't do for ourselves, he came to do for us. And so repairing this relationship that was broken. And that's ultimately what religion is. It's a relinking. The idea is we couldn't do it for ourselves. Jesus did it on our behalf. And through him, by faith in him, we can be relinked in this relationship with God the Father. And so as we're reconnected, what will happen is we will then be able to grow in right relationship with people around us. Those difficult spots that we've had in our lives, we'll be able to grow in that. And so I shared with you that you cannot have a right relationship with people until you have a right relationship with God. But at the same time, you cannot have a right relationship with God until you have a right relationship with people. These things are uh, interlinked. They're interlocked. And now, one of the things that can break down those relationships, James not so subtly hits us between the eyes with in chapter 3, where he says, hey, that tongue inside your mouth, uh, yeah, that's uh, death. <laughs> the fires of hell were ignited from the tongue. And so what we find is, no doubt, that the tongue is one of the surest ways to destroy relationships. The proverb says that in the tongue, there's the power to both give life and to take life away. And you know, if you've had uh, leadership opportunities or if you've been affected by a leader, that that is very much true. That they can tear you down just as quickly as they can 
pick you up and build you up. And so a mature Christian will actually take control of their tongue and be able to use it to encourage. My favorite verse in that entire chapter comes at the end of chapter 3 and, and in the uh, new, excuse me, in the NIV, it says that peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. I mean, what a relationship to be able to be a peacemaker who sows peace so we can actually see a harvest of righteousness take place. Now, in chapter 4, transitioning then, James shares where do wars and strifes actually begin? They begin in the heart. All these problems that we have actually start in our own wicked, deceitful hearts. And so for a mature Christian, they are one that has integrity in their heart. They're doing the right thing even if no one is watching them because they've received a heart transplant by Jesus himself. It's an inside-out relationship. He's changed me on the inside so I can now have integrity through and through. Now, finally, as we reach chapter 5, what we found last week is two things James wants to share, first of which is the mature Christian is patient. And in six different times between verses 7 through 12, he uses the word patience, endurance, or perseverance. I think James is trying to drive home a point that for the mature Christian, we need to be patient. Now, he's going to transition this week, and you guessed it, six times between verses 13 and verse 20, he's going to use the word a prayer or prayerful or some derivative of the word prayer. He is balancing out his use of this word, and I think intentionally the Holy Spirit has done this because there is a link between prayerfulness and patience. If you show me a patient Christian, I will show you a prayerful Christian. And conversely, if you show me a prayerful Christian, I will also show you a patient Christian. And so God grows us in this connection in both of these relationships. So today we're going to focus on the mature Christian being one who is prayerful. Now verse 13 is where we'll pick up. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. What I love about this is that in prayer, what I pick up from this first verse is that God desires to meet you right where you're at. Right in the spot that you enter into that prayer, he wants to meet you there. And oftentimes we get this in our head that we have to approach God in a certain way, in a certain manner. I've got to be in a certain frame of mind. I've got to be in my prayer position, have my coffee, my Bible. I got to have it all. And then now I can come to Jesus and pray. But the reality is he wants to meet you right where you're at. So if you come in here today brokenhearted, Here's good news, what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 18. He shares that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. And often we come into church feeling like we have to put on our, our Jesus smile, right? We have to somehow doctor it up and pretend like everything's all good. I didn't get in a fight with my wife, my stinking kids on the way over here, right? Like we got it all going on. But the reality is Jesus wants to meet you right where you're at, even in that difficult moment. Now, conversely, for those who are cheerful, who came in in a great spot, what James says in verse 5 is, look, if you're in a good spot, sing songs. I mean, throw your head back and be cheerful if that's the spot that you're in. The important piece about this is approach God with sincerity. He values authenticity. He wants us to be authentic, people of integrity through and through, and he desires to hear from us as his children. 
He wants to have a dialogue, not a monologue. We often get it in our heads that we just have to spout a bunch of things off to God and then let him work it all out. He wants it to be a back and forth dialogue relationship. This is what he desires. And the same is true even in our interpersonal relationships. We should be able to approach one another right where we're at. What Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says, mourn with those who mourn and laugh with those who laugh. And so as we come into contact with people, and we can tell by the look on their face, they're struggling. Be willing to shed a tear with them. Be willing to relate, to connect right where they're at. And if they're having a good time, they're throwing their head back and laughing, then throw your head back. Ha ha! Woo! God is good, right? Enter into that kind of relationship because the reality of the Christian church is that we were never meant to be an evergreen tree. We don't want to pretend like it lots of times on Sundays that things should be all green all the time. I'm an evergreen tree. But the reality is we were made to be deciduous trees. We will have a season that is spring and summer for sure, but that also means fall and winter are coming around. Now, by God's grace, what I love about the body of Christ is we will not all be in the same season at the same time. And so for the one who is in the winter season, to be able to look upon those in spring and summer, not to condemn them, just you wait, winter's coming. It's coming for you. Hang on. No, but to look at that and be encouraged and go, man, I'm struggling now, but there's life here. There's going to be spring and summer soon, and I cannot wait to have leaves on my tree again. And so to come alongside each other and meet one another where we're at. Now, verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so the encouragement here from James to us as a church is if there's anyone among you sick, let him call on the name of the elders. I think that's important to note. If there's anyone sick, let you call on the leadership of your church. Call on the elders. Don't expect the leaders to have ESP. We barely have ESPN at my house, alone ESP. We don't know what's going on in your situation. And so there's no way for us to know unless you let us know. And then when you let us in, we get an opportunity to pray for you. Now, many times we get convinced in our head, I don't want to burden the pastor. I don't want to burden the leaders in my church to have them come pray for me. And I want to put an end to that right now. It is not a burden. It is an honor. It is a great honor to have the opportunity to step into someone's life and get the chance to pray for them. We had people in our church back in Missouri, and, and the, the husband was a big, burly guy, tough guy, but he was struggling and needed neck surgery, a serious neck surgery. And so he called upon the pastor and I, I was the assistant at that time, to come in and pray for him right before surgery. And I got to tell you, it was such an honor to have the chance to pray for this guy who was bigger than life. He was tough, but he was scared for his family. He was worried about what would happen if this thing went south, and it could have in a hurry. And so we got the opportunity to go in and lay hands on this gentleman right before surgery. And I remember the connection, the, the tear that went down his cheek as he was so thankful. And, and he did say as we laid hands on him to pray, he said, boys, I want to thank you for praying for me. And also just be careful where you put your hands. I ain't got a stitch of clothes on underneath this rope. <laughs> 
So that's, that's my people right there. And he's making it clear. Be careful. But he was so thankful. It is a great honor to get to step in and pray. Now, the other things to note that James is sharing is, then the elders of the church had the responsibility to go and, you guessed it, pray. So make it known and then go and pray. And the elders will take oil and anoint you in prayer. Now, this can, depending on where you fall, uh, weird you out a little bit about oil and being anointed. But let me just share with you, in the Old Testament, oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so when you see a scene and a king or a priest being anointed with oil, they would take a horn of oil, which is sort of like taking a Gatorade bucket of oil and dumping it over the head of somebody. That's why when it says oil ran down the beard of Aaron, they took a big old jug of it and just dumped it on someone to show the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, thankfully, if you ask me to anoint you with oil, I'll take a dot and put it on your head or wherever you ask, but not uh, dump you with a bucket, a Gatorade bucket of oil. But the point is not the amount. The idea is it's a connection point of realizing by faith the Holy Spirit is the one that can actually come in and do the work. Now, does God use medicine? Absolutely. Does God use miracles? Absolutely. But regardless of if it's a medical miracle or just a straight-up Jesus miracle, it's the Holy Spirit that comes in and actually does the work. It's Him. And so what you're doing by being anointed with oil is you're acknowledging, I don't have the power to change this, but I know one who does. And so it's a faith step. Now, not only this, but then we call on the one whose name can actually change everything. If you're anointed with oil and then call on the name of the Lord, it's all about Him. He's the one that's actually doing the work. Now, the question is going to come up invariably, why does sometimes this work? Why does sometimes God do this and sometimes he does not? And the answer that I can come up with is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9. It says that my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so the answer I have is I don't know. I don't know why sometimes God chooses to heal and sometimes he does not. I don't know why sometimes the miraculous takes place, and I have seen it, my friends. And sometimes it does not. And yet, what I know is that his ways are always higher. He's got a way different perspective on things than what you and I do. And this is why, as the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says, and verse 11 is where I'll start. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking about maturing spiritually. Verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. What Paul is saying there is, we're not going to get the whole picture. It, when I look upon these things, even on my best day, even as I mature in this relationship with Jesus, I don't get to see everything completely clearly. I'm looking through a mirror dimly. I get a little bit of clarity, but not much. But I know that I can pray to one who understands everything from beginning to the end. He can see it all taking place. And so the position I am in and that you're in is not to know everything, but to trust in him who does so when we're called to pray, the answer is, oh, go pray. <laughs> go pray. Should I pray for this? Should I not pray for this? I would tell you, unless you get a thus saith the Lord, don't pray for it, pray for it. 
pray with someone when they ask you to pray. And you'll be amazed at what he can do through that. Now, continuing in, better get to not being 1 Corinthians, better get to James. Uh, continuing in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16 says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So confession is an important part in this right relationship with God. In fact, what Solomon would write in Proverbs chapter 28, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, if I can get there, there we go. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says this, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I don't know about you, but I could certainly use mercy most days. And so the encouragement here from Solomon is confessing of sins actually allows God to give us mercy. What it means to confess is simply to repeat something back, to acknowledge a wrong. I think that's important for us to grasp because as we confess to God, realize he doesn't, he's not actually surprised. At no point in time is he sitting in heaven as we confess a sin and go, you don't say, wow, I never saw that coming. Like God is never surprised by our confession. But as we confess, what we're doing is acknowledging a wrong. We're repeating back what God already knew about us. And as we repeat that back, it's important to note who this is all about. It's all about you. And so in confession, don't blame others. Don't say, Lord, you know this is where I stumbled, but they made me do it. They had it coming when I smacked them in the nose of the demo derby. They had it coming, right? We shouldn't pray in that way. You had to go to the demo derby to get that joke. But nevertheless, that's not the way we should pray. It should be all about us and confessing, laying it down. Because here's the thing, as we confess or we do not make things right, it actually affects our worship. What Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there because the alt before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Lack of confession can affect the way we worship. To truly have unhindered, unchained worship, we have got to lay things down, especially when someone has been hurt or when we have been hurt. And so the encouragement is to go to them, and as much as depends upon you, try to make it right, to go in and lay it down. How they receive it, I don't know. That's on them. They might receive it well. They may not. But it gives us an opportunity to enter into right relationship. Now, why don't we do this? Why are we good to confess things to God, and yet we struggle with confessing to the one we've hurt? Well, because oftentimes there's ramifications and consequences, and it hangs us up. I don't know. I don't know if I've got enough faith to believe they're going to forgive me for this, and so I'm going to hold on. And what happens is it becomes bondage. It becomes torture. And to the point where we're no longer able to worship. And we even convince ourselves, look, this sin is a thing that really only affects me. 
So if I don't talk about it, this is only affecting me. But what Romans 14 says is that no one lives to themselves nor dies to themselves. And I would submit to you, no one actually sins unto themselves. Sin always has an effect on someone else. Often it's the people closest to us, the ones that it's the hardest to talk to. And yet sin has this effect on the people around us and an effect on the way we worship. And so as we approach this idea of confession, how should it look? I would encourage you that the circle of sin, whose sin is actually affected in your circle, is the same circle as the circle of confession needs to be. I think Matthew chapter 18 has been used and abused in churches for a long time by requiring people to come up and confess sins outside of the circle that it actually affected. And yet if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, the instructions that the Lord gave, he said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you gained your brother. And so the circle should be confined to the circle that it actually affected. Now, if I get in an argument with my wife and we're able to handle that argument between us, the circle can stay like that. If I get into an argument with her out in the parking lot uh, over lunch today, the circle just got increasingly bigger, you see. And so can you keep that circle uh, tight? You can if that's all the farther the effect goes. Now, as we get this opportunity, uh, I want to encourage you that if you decide to share outside of that circle, beware because it can stumble people. It can stumble people or it can even cause gossip to happen. Now, there were uh, three pastors that met every week at a little coffee shop, a Baptist pastor, a Methodist pastor, and a Presbyterian. And the Baptist pastor, feeling convicted that day over coffee, he said, look, guys, I've just got to tell you, um, I've been a closet drinker for years now. I've struggled with it. In fact, I even keep a bottle in my desk, and I just needed to get that laid out there to you guys. And the Methodist pastor hearing this, he said, wow, he's convicted now. He said, look, uh, I got to tell you guys, for years, I've been taking just a little bit of money out of the offering plate. Every week, I feel convicted, not a whole lot, but yet it's gotten down to the point where every week I'm taking a little more and a little more, and I needed to, to lay this down before you guys. Now, the Presbyterian pastor, upon hearing this, he gets up from the table and he begins to walk out of the restaurant. And these two guys say, hey, wait a minute, where are you going? Like, we just confessed these things. He said, well, I got to confess to you guys, I've struggled for years with gossip, and I can't wait to go tell people what I just heard. <laughs> so, you have to be careful of the circle that you share with, that that's the circle where the sin actually took place, lest you could stumble someone. But, all this to say, and not doing this, and not confessing our sins one to another, to the one that we've hurt, what it can cause is bondage for the one that won't open up. It can be a terrible, hellish spot to be in. I can share that with you from personal experience. It's, it's awful to be in that place. And secondly, what it can also do is leave us powerless. That in large part, this particular passage, this struggle right here, for the Western church in particular, this is why we as a group collectively, globally, do not have power. Because we will not lay our sins down. We will not confess ye one to another. And so as a result, the enemy has an opportunity to whisper inside our head, you're not good enough. You're not doing it right. Remember that thing over there. This is why you can't be bold. You can't pray, who are you? 
And so we, we lose power. Where when we give that up, when we actually by laying it down, what we do is we gain a tremendous amount of power to be able to say, yeah, you're absolutely right. That guy did that thing. And guess what? He gone. He's dead. He's buried. So you can say whatever you want to do about that guy. He died years ago. I've laid all this down. It creates a tremendous opportunity to be able to share and witness to people. Now, continuing on here at the end of verse 16, he says, The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three, and a, for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And so what you find is confession is vital to effective prayer. It is vital for us to be able to worship and also for us to be able to pray effectively. And yet, so often we lack the faith to deal with these things. And James, knowing this, he gives us an example of one who had tremendous faith, a guy named Elijah. Now, if you've spent any time at all in the Old Testament, if you've thought at all about the Old Testament prophets, at the top of the list, I love rankings, right? Football rankings, but I don't care. Men like lists for some reason. You guys notice that? Like, give me a list and I'll read it. I don't even know why. List of top 10 Monopoly players. I'm in. All right, who's the number one? But same way, top list here. You got Elijah right up there at the top. And you think about his story, especially out of 1 Kings chapter 18, as Elijah was a prophet over the land of Israel during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. The whole land, the nation, was taken up with idolatry, in particular worship of Baal. Baal was known as the god of fertility. And so they had all these lewd types of practices that they would have to worship Baal. But in particular, he also fertilized the ground through rain. And so as Elijah prayed for the rain to stop, understand that's a direct assault on their false worship to Baal. And so the heavens, it shuts up for three and a half years. I mean, imagine having the faith to pray that it would not rain for three and a half years. That's some kind of faith. And so this is Elijah. Now, as it does not rain on the land for year after year. He then calls for the prophets of Baal. In, Math, in 1 Kings chapter 18, they have the showdown on Mount Carmel, or what some like to refer to as the very first ever Super Baal. Super Baal. I'll keep working on it. Eventually, it's going to be funny. Uh, but so they have this showdown there on Mount Carmel. He calls for these 450 prophets of Baal, and he says to them, look, you set up an altar, put a sacrifice upon it, and you call on your God to burn up the sacrifice. And I'll go over on my side, and I'll do the same thing. And so these prophets of Baal, they gather together. They set up the altar. They begin to do all their ritualistic practices, calling on fire from heaven, and nothing happened. Hours go by, nothing is taking place. And so at this point, which is why I believe Elijah has a little bit of Midwestern in him, he begins to make fun of the prophets of Baal. He says, wait a minute, maybe your God can't hear you. He could be hard of hearing, or perhaps he's out on vacation. Maybe just taking a little time away. Maybe that's the reason. Or even better yet, maybe he's in the commode. Maybe he's using the restroom. That's why he's not sending down fire from heaven. And so hours of this go on, and these guys finally, they begin to cut themselves and all kinds of things, and they just give up. And so Elijah gets his turn. And as he gets his turn to step up to the plate, he 
builds a very simple altar of unhewn stones. He sets the sacrifice on top of the altar. And then in uh, 1 Kings, he prays this in verse 37. Notice with me, not a complicated prayer. He doesn't spend a bunch of time praying in only the King James to make sure it's exactly perfect. Instead, he says, hear me, O Lord. Hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their backs, their hearts back to you again. And as he prays that, fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the altar. It burns up the stones on the altar. Even the water that he poured on the altar, it laps all of it up. Now, if that weren't enough for Elijah to pray that kind of faith, he then calls for the prophets of Baal to all be brought to him. He pulls out a sword and actually hacks into pieces 450 dudes. He cuts them up right there on the spot. And if that weren't enough, he then goes up on the mountain and prays for it to rain again. And over the Mediterranean, a small rain cloud begins to gather, and then the drops start to hit. After three and a half years, it begins to rain. Now, at this point, King Ahab, he jumps in his chariot. He takes off back to Jezreel, heads back to his palace. And Elijah, this man of faith, he takes his robe, and he girds it up like a man so he can run. And he begins to run like a madman, some 15 to 17 miles to Jezreel to outrun the chariot of Ahab. Now, this is why every time I think of a picture of Elijah, I think of Ted Nugent right? Like just crazy man, just flat out wild-eyed. He shows up there with rain coming down off his long hair in his camel fur outfit, no doubt blood all over his hands, just huffing and puffing. (laughs) What a scene. And I'm thinking, I don't have faith in anything close to Elijah. I got nothing on that guy. And so James is saying that we can have faith like Elijah. I've got nowhere near that. Until you read just a little bit further into the story. As he's there with King Ahab, and then a word comes from Jezebel in chapter 19, verse 2, after he's just slayed all of her prophets. She says, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time. And in verse 3, he saw that, he arose, and he ran for his life. Here's this great man of faith, called down fire from heaven, just slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal, called for it to rain again, and then he is all at once scared to death by the threat of a woman. It tells you how scared you ladies can be at times, doesn't it? But it also shows that this great man of faith has a lot more in common with me than what I thought. Because I have at times had faith, and I have at times had no faith whatsoever. Been a complete struggle. You see, Elijah wasn't superhuman. What he did was he exercised the faith that God had given him. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, to each has been given a measure of faith. I'm not responsible for Elijah's faith, or your faith for that matter. I'm responsible for the faith God has given me. Whatever measure of faith, and as I'm responsible for that, what I'm to do is exercise it. It's a muscle. And as I exercise it and I show responsibility in this area, he will be good to give me more faith. 
And we grow in this relationship from faith to faith. He gives more faith. And what I find is that many times in my relationship, I'm a lot like the dad was in Mark chapter 9, whose son had been thrown for years into the fire. And he goes to Jesus and he says there, would you heal my son? And Jesus' response was, do you have faith? Because to him who believes, all things are possible. And the man says in verse 24 of Mark 9, Lord, I believe. Now help my own belief. That's how I pray more often than not. I believe. I've got just a little bit of faith. Would you please help my unbelief? Help me in this place. And he will be good to do that. Now back to James. He says this, that the fervent, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. To be fervent means to be earnest, to be intentional, to have intentionality in my prayer. And then righteous is right standing with God, to be in a right relationship with God. And so this little math equation works out like this, that righteousness plus fervency equals effectiveness. That if I can be fervent, intentional, and I had it shared with me years ago that if, if you can't pray about something for multiple days in a row, you probably aren't responsible enough for God to give it to you. So am I willing to be fervent, intentional in my prayer life to say, yes, I, I, Lord, would you please work in this way? Would you deliver in this way and be intentional day in and day out and be in a right relationship? And what you'll find is God will be effective in that prayer. Don't know exactly how to look. It's not for us to know, but he will be good to his word and be effective. Now, finally, as we head down the home stretch, verse 19, James writes, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns his back, in verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a strange way to end the book. But what he ends with is I was thinking like, what an abrupt, just kind of, we're done. If any of you turns a brother back, he's saved him from death and a multitude of sins. I was thinking back about this chapter and where we started in chapter 5 with, was James addressing one who is mature in how he views his possessions. That it's not all about earthly possessions, but having a right understanding that whatever I have is because God gave it to me. It's a, it's a blessing from him and him alone. And so it's, it's all his. And then he moves to patience. And then he moves on to prayer. And then he, at the end of this book, he talks about leading someone back to Jesus. And what you'll find is if you have the opportunity to lead someone back to Christ, what it will take is possessions. But the most valuable possession we have is time. It will take personal investment. It will take time. It will then take patience. And it will take fervent prayer to be able to lead someone back. And he will be good and faithful to use you to do that. Why? Why does God use us as instruments to do this, as flawed individuals? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I, have, I, I look at me and I'm like, I am so, I'm tore up from the floor up half the time. Why would God use me in any way? And yet, even through broken vessels, the light shines through. And so he, he will be good to use us in these relationships to lead someone back to the Lord. 
But then sometimes the question is, why would I bother? Like, if this is going to take all my time, this is going to take so much out of me, why would I bother? The reason is because people are the only thing that is eternal. That we can have all the possessions we want in this life, and yet the only thing we can take with us to the next are souls. It's people. It's relationships. And so whatever we think we possess, it's nothing more than a tool in order to allow us access into someone's life. And so people are what actually matter. And what God will do is he will put people in your life to intersect you at just the right time. And what it will do is change your trajectory forever or whoever you're put in their life for all of eternity. It's a beautiful thing. For me in 2016, uh, that person was the pastor at our little church, Mike Harrison. And I didn't, I didn't truly know the Lord. I wasn't actually surrendered to him. I would have told you I was a Christian, but I would tell you I would not have wanted to, to put that in the bank. I, if I made it in, it was by smoking ropes. I mean, I would have had flames coming off of me. And yet, through an email that I sent to say, hey, would you mind meeting me for lunch? He allowed a relationship to start where I was able to just share with him what was going on in my life. And, and through that and really subpar Mexican food, God used that relationship to actually change the trajectory of my family, you see. And God will be sure to do that same thing for you. As he allows these interactions to take place, he can completely change trajectories of families. And for years I had worked to leave an inheritance behind for my kids. I was going to leave them with something. I was going to leave them with opportunities that I didn't have. I was going to leave them with money in the bank. This is what they need. I'm doing this all for you. And then I had to question, what am I actually leaving behind? What am I truly leaving as a spiritual inheritance? We wouldn't have been against God, and yet we were not pro-Jesus in our household. And so what kind of inheritance was I actually leaving behind? And the reality was for generation after generation, we have to look at what things are we leaving behind for our kids. For many of us, we can look back, and if we're really being honest, is there is a history of generational sin that we do not want to deal with, and yet what I want to encourage you is to be bold enough to deal with it. As I was talking to my wife about this this week, she reminded me of a story in Judges. And if, as you go back to Judges, if you've ever spent any time reading through it, definitely if you read through it with your kids, you need to know that Judges is sort of like the, the PG-13 to the rated R book in the Old Testament. Things get a little bit crazy in the book of Judges. But in large part, what was happening there is they had been commanded by the Lord to drive out the Canaanites. Joshua brings the nation of Israel in to drive out the people that had lived there. But they had lived such an awful life. They had actually practiced child sacrifice. All kinds of terrible things were taking place. And what God says is, go and possess the land. Drive out these Canaanites because if you leave them, whatever sin, and the Canaanites in the Old Testament were always a picture of sin. Whatever sin you're not willing to deal with, it will eventually come back to haunt you. And so what we see in the book of Judges is that playing out. They were unwilling to have the faith to drive out the Canaanites from the land. And then generation after generation had to deal with the sin issues that weren't dealt with by the previous group. 
And so in this spot in chapter 4, they couldn't even find a man to go out and fight the battle. Deborah had to step up and go, you know what? There's no dudes willing to step up and fight. I'm going to step up. And they began to challenge the Canaanite kings in their area and drive them out of the land. And as they're being driven out of the land, the Israelites have a great victory in this spot in chapter 4. And the commander of the Canaanite army, he's taken off. He's running away. And as he's running away, he seeks to find shelter in the tent of a lady named Jael. And as she greets this guy at the door of the tent, and she goes on in there, what the man asks her is, would you just hide me? Hide me in here in your tent for just a little while. And if anybody comes to the door, tell them you haven't seen me. Now think about the picture. Here is decade after decade of sin that had plagued them, and it is now in her tent. She has an opportunity to deal with it, or just it's not hurting anyone right now. It's not bothering anybody else. If I just leave it right here, right now, this will all pass. And so what Jael does is this commander of the army lays down on the bed, and she picks up a tent stake. And this is a little PG-13. She takes the tent stake to his temple, and she drives it right through the head of this commander of the Canaanite army. And I think about how often we have opportunity after opportunity to deal with generational sin, things that have plagued us. You men know what I'm talking about because you've seen it through the lives of your family members, and you go, I could deal with this right now. I could drive this stake through this sin once and for all, I could just let it lay there. It's not hurting anything in this moment. But I want to encourage you that this is an opportunity to make a generational change, to change the trajectory of a family. And so I'm in this spot now where I have an opportunity to to take the tent stake out and drive it through the head of sin in my life, in large part because someone made the investment in me, willing to take time willing to pray, willing to be patient as I babbled like a bumbling idiot over a lunch. And yet he took that time with me. And so the question is, what kind of investment will you make for those that are put in your path this week? Will you take the time? Because it can change families for an entire generation, for generations to come. And I remember pointedly asking him, why Are you spending so much time with me? What what is it about me that you would sit and spend this kind of time that you probably don't have, sometimes an hour, sometimes two, where I'm sniveling all over myself? Why would you do that? And what he shared with me was that years ago, in a little Southern Baptist church, he had a guy from Mississippi that was his pastor. And he spent that same kind of time with him. And he said, I asked the same question of this Mississippi, Southern drawl, Baptist pastor. And he said, Harrison, it's because you're worthy. Because you're worthy. And so as he shared that with me, he said, I spend this time with you because you're worthy. I'm doing it because you're worthy. And I want to share that with you this afternoon because people that you come into contact with are worthy, and so are you. I know you're worthy because Romans chapter 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for 
you. You're that worthy. And so as we get an opportunity here in just a few minutes to take communion, I want to encourage you to pray about who he's put in your life, to pray through what he is convicting you of to make right with someone that you've got going on, something. And don't ever shy away from an opportunity to invest in or to be invested in in your life. Because for everyone, we will have a Paul who is ahead of us, willing to invest. And to everyone, there will be a Timothy. There will be someone that you can invest in along the way. And it's all going to be worth it for all of eternity. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for James chapter 5. Lord, thank you for the not-so-subtle way that James challenges us, that he exhorts us, that he encourages us to pick up a tent stake and drive it through the head of whatever is plaguing us for generations, Lord. Thank you for that opportunity we have to make right with you, to make right with others, and then to be effective in our prayer life, to be effective to the people you've placed us around. The church camp the kids heard to be effective in the garden that God has placed you in. Lord, help us to be effective in the garden that you've placed us in. Lord, grow us in faith. We don't have to have a faith like Elijah unless you gave us faith like Elijah. Then let us use it. But Lord, help us to be good stewards of the faith you have given us. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have Daryl and Ben come forward and take the plates and pass them around for communion. I want to just encourage you guys to, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have to be a member. We don't have anything like that. So you're one of us. Partake. And if he's not, then let it pass. But don't be afraid to ask him to come into your heart. He is in the transformation business, and he'd be glad to do that.